Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, everyone. I know you were expecting the final part of the Moira Anderson episodes to be released today. However, sadly, life just keeps getting in the way at the moment and I've not been able to complete this episode. However, as before, I didn't like to leave you with no episodes today. So instead, I will be releasing a two-part story from the podcast Book of the Dead, which is a Darkcast Network podcast and is hosted by Courtney and Lisa about Andrew Cananan, who was wicked smart, charismatic and ridiculously handsome and could have had it all until he threw it all away. I will release part two tomorrow and I will get the last episode of the Moira Anderson story released as soon as possible. So if you're not one of the 19.5% of our listeners that follow Scottish Murders on Spotify or if you haven't subscribed where you listen to your podcasts, then do so now so you'll know as soon as the Moira Anderson conclusion episode is released. But for now, here's part one about Andrew Cananan. Hi guys, I'm Courtney. And I'm Lisa. And welcome to the next chapter in the Book of the Dead. Um, This is part one. This is another two-parter. But... There's a lot of information and I think when, for some of you at least, when you hear the name Andrew Cananan, it may ring a bell for you. For others, you may have never heard of him, but you may be familiar with one of his victims, especially if you're into fashion, if you're into anything that creator Ryan Murphy has made on television. So for those of you who have no idea what I'm talking about, I have just one hell of a case for you. And this is the story of Andrew Cunanan and his five victims. So according to Boston University, Andrew Cunanan was born on August 31st, 1969 in National City, California to Modesto and Marianne Cunanan. He was the youngest of four and his parents absolutely doted on him. Marianne and Modesto gave Andrew everything he could ever want growing up. They told him how special he was and how successful he would be. They allegedly got him a sports car. They gave him the master bedroom in their home. He had his own bathroom. Like... (laughs) What about the other kids? Like, were they not a little jealous of... Yeah, I don't... this, This one? I mean, you know, if he's getting everything... 
there's only one master bedroom in a house. Yeah. I'd be a little miffed if... I, yeah, I'd be pretty irritated if you gave my younger brother, like, the master bedroom, his own bathroom, like, a sports car. I mean, the family was well off, but, I mean, they literally gave this... Gave him everything he could ever want, which definitely, um, I think warped him a little bit because he was accustomed to a specific lifestyle because his parents gave him a specific lifestyle. I will say though that his parents were not wrong about the success he could have in life. By the third grade, he had an IQ of 147, which is astounding. Okay, well that's wonderful if you're using it for, or you're using your knowledge for good. Well, yeah. Um, According to ABC News, in an interview with Diane Sawyer, Andrew's brother Christopher said, quote, he was my father's pride and joy. He was very smart. When he was about 10 years old, he had read the whole set of encyclopedias and memorized it. You could ask him any question, pick up any edition and ask him any question and he would tell you. I mean, for some people now, they might not know what the encyclopedia is. But I grew up knowing what an encyclopedia, and they, like, they are just huge volumes on, like, everything, any subject. It's like Wikipedia in book form. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, yes, I do. I there Well, were, obviously, you know what I mean. <laughs> there are volumes and volumes of, you know, A to Z, plus a few, Yeah. I want to say supplementals, but they had information on everything on people on places on history on geography on science i you you biology you name it it had it in there like if you wanted to know about a specific type of rock that you could only find in like brunei there was probably an encyclopedia for it like i mean it just it was basically the world's knowledge in book form in like a tangible form so the fact that he memorized it i don't know if he had like an eidetic memory probably but that's a big deal to memorize an an entire set of cyclopedias yes that is hugely impressive now when he was a teenager he was accepted into one of the top college preparatory schools in the country called the bishop school The students that would go there were the children of diplomats and politicians. It was like a very prestigious school. And I mean, he was the child of a stay-at-home mom and a stockbroker. So while he had money, he was not one of, I want to say the elite, for lack of a better term. You know what I mean? Yes, he he didn't have the connections that these other families did. Exactly. So, according to Town and Country magazine, while attending the Bishop School, he would make up stories about his life to kind of fit in with the other kids. And, you know, as I said, like, the students that attended the school were far wealthier than his family. They had, you know, more connections, as you said. They were part of a higher class. So, in an effort to fit in, he would tell, like, these insane stories about his family. And apparently this led people to believe later in life that this was an indicator of antisocial personality disorder because he had this penchant for lying. He would go on to claim that his father was an Israeli millionaire, which was not true. His father was Filipino-American and a stockbroker. 
And I mean, he would just really come up with these outlandish tales about his family. According to John Walsh, the host of America's Most Wanted, Andrew felt like an outsider throughout high school, and he would later sign his yearbook with Après moi, le déluge. I probably butchered that. But it translates to mean after me, the flood. Which just sounds very ominous. It, okay. It, it sounds a little weird to me, but hey, what do I know? Uh, he was also voted most likely to be remembered just because of the way he was. He he had a very loud personality, very out there. Like, I mean, if I'm sure if he was in a crowd of people, you would notice him immediately just because that was like the energy he exuded. Like, it's I'm here. I'm amazing. Look at me kind of thing. It was the I Love Me by Andrew Hour constantly. Oh, geez. I went to school with a guy like that. <laughs> I know. I know. I definitely know a guy like that. So uh, according to former FBI criminal profiler Candace DeLong, she said, quote, Andrew's self-worth was tied to the finer things in life, what people could do for him. Being accepted in high society and by wealthy people was what he expected. If he didn't get them, he was lost. And according to Boston University, things weren't all that great at home, which I think contributed to his desire to really be accepted by the elites in California. So allegedly his father was very verbally abusive towards his mother and Marianne suffered from depression as a result. Now, after graduating high school, Andrew would go on to study American history at the University of California, San Diego, although he would drop out two years later. Now, through the 80s, Andrew was openly gay at school. Oh, oh, he hid this from his family, which, I mean, I understand this was the 80s. His mother was Sicilian-American and very, very religious. You know, I, I get why he would be hiding that from his family. Now, while he was in college, according to an article for Oxygen.com, Andrew would go on to date older men, all of whom were very, very wealthy. It seems as if it was like a sugar daddy kind of thing, which you do you. <laughs> Whatever. According to Roman Jimenez, a journalist, Andrew, quote, spent time with wealthier men who could help keep him in a life he aspired to. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today. To, has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. In 1988, the life Andrew had, ac- had become accustomed to came to a screeching halt when his father took the family money sold the home from under his wife and children and fled to the Philippines after being accused of embezzling over $100,000. Uh-oh. So they were broke. They had to move into a much smaller home and his father was gone. Oh, that's not, that doesn't bode well. It doesn't. And I, I, I do believe that at this point he had started to kind of spiral a bit that same year, Andrew started partying hard at gay clubs in the area, which, as I said, his very religious mother was not happy to learn about. And allegedly during an argument with her about his lifestyle and his sexuality, he threw Marianne into a wall and dislocated her shoulder. His mother. That That's no bueno. So no bueno. You do not put your hands on your mom. Absolutely. I mean... I, I don't, obviously I was not there. I don't know what was said. I, I know that not everyone is fortunate enough to have like an accepting family when they come out. Um, so I, it could have been of, I, I'm not saying that she didn't say some terrible things because she might have, but that was no excuse for him to put her hands on her and literally dislocate her shoulder. I, again, I don't know what was said. I don't know. Maybe she said some really disgustingly terrible things. But still, he was wrong for what he did. Right. He could have just gotten up and left. And again, you know, in the heat of the moment, I'm sure that's not what he was thinking. I don't know. But I'm sure that's not what he was thinking. It was, you know, probably lashing out. And I'm sure she, as you said, said some horrible, horrible things. And it did not, you know, it does not give her the right to do that. But it also does not give him the right to put his hands on his mother, who I would think would not be as strong or as capable to defend herself against her own child, who is male. And a grown adult at this point. He was in his 20s. You know, so, I mean, there's, you know, she's, she's obviously not in her 20s. Probably doesn't have the strength that he does. Again, it's just, you know, I mean, it's for me, you know, most women do not have the strength of a man. Oh, no, absolutely. Like, I'm not saying that there aren't women out there that do. Yeah, no, 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 absolutely. I know, like, just for me personally, like, pretty much the only thing I have going for me in terms of, like, physical physicality is I'm tall. I'm 5'9". It's very tall for a woman. So that's the only thing I as an advantage. But like, you know, my my brother has maybe an inch or two in height on me, but he also is like, okay, maybe like two or three um, inches on me, which isn't that significant of a difference. But the kid also works out six days a week. Like I would lose. <laughs> when he's lifting the way he lifts? Yeah, I you know. You know, even my husband, my husband's got a few inches on me. He doesn't work out. I would lose in a fight against my husband, like, just because I know I'm not as strong as him. And he doesn't work out. So it definitely, like, I, she was at a severe physical disadvantage. Um, it's not, or, you know, like when we did the Sherry Rasmussen case, you know, Sherry 
was six feet tall, worked out regularly. And Stephanie Lazarus was significantly shorter than her, but also worked out regularly. So even though they were, there was a major height difference, they were more on par physically. Um, if if it had been a man that killed Shari Rasmussen, it may there may have been a, a there may have been even more of an, a disadvantage because they tend to have bigger builds. Yeah, it's just nature. Yeah, so it, it, it's a nature thing. Mm-hmm. You know, most of the time, most of the time. Men are stronger than women. In 1989, after dropping out of college, Andrew moved to the Castro District of San Francisco, which is a prominent area of LGBTQ culture. It was there that Andrew was allegedly dabbling in sex work and really started partying hard, like even harder than he was. He was also allegedly involved in like a sadomasochistic pornography thing, which again, you do you. Sometime in 1990, Andrew allegedly meets Gianni Versace. Everyone knows who Versace is. Everyone knows the brand. Everyone knows Donatella Versace, his sister. Pre-1997, Gianni Versace was the it guy. Like, top of the top, you know? Yes. Now, Andrew held Gianni Versace in very high regard. Gianni was rich and famous a designer he was openly gay and lived a lifestyle that andrew could only dream of i mean the man was rolling in money he was jet setting all around the world you know living living his life i mean even now versace is like one of the top luxury brands now according to maureen orth who wrote the book vulgar favors about andrew cunanan and the murder of Gianni Versace. She told Dateline Secrets Uncovered that Andrew met Gianni at a party after attending an opera that Gianni had designed the costumes for. Now, I will say this has never been substantiated. Like, there are people that's, like Maureen, that say, yes, he met Gianni Versace. There are other people, like um, Gianni Versace's partner at the time, that said, no, they never met at all. So it really, it kind of depends on the source. Either they met, they didn't. Either way, Andrew definitely knew who, who Gianni Versace was because the whole world knew who he was. So it, it kind of just depends on who you listen to, whether they actually met or they didn't. Now we're going to briefly sidestep and we're going to talk about some other people. And they are very important to the story. According to Harper's Bazaar, sometime in 1992 or early 1993, Andrew meets a man named Jeff Trail. They met in San Francisco while Jeff was serving as a nableman on the USS Gridley. Now, around the time they met, Jeff had just been interviewed anonymously by 48 Hours about being a closeted gay man in the military. He said, quote, whether people like it or not, there are gays in the military. They're very top-notch performers. They know what they're doing. You're going to weaken our national defense if you're going to remove gays from the military, and you'll never be able to do it 100%. It's just whether or not you're going to hunt us and force us to fear. Because this is around the time that um, Don't Ask, Don't Tell was, you know, put in place, and, you know, people were really flipping out about gay men in the military and all this nonsense. So he was... He was closeted. He was not out because because he was in the military. Um, and you know when he meets Andrew, it was kind of like like oh wow, like you you get to be who you are, like who you want to be. Like I I think there was a little bit of an allure there because Andrew was this openly gay man, did not care if people knew who he was gay. He was like I'm here, I'm gay, 
what are you going to do about it kind of thing. Right. So according to an article published in 1997 for the Washington Post, Jeff was born in DeKalb, Illinois, to Stanley, a retired math professor at Northern Illinois University, and Anne, a retired elementary school teacher. And he was the youngest of five. His father told the Washington Post, quote, Jeff was the kind of guy who was always trying to help people out. He was kind, caring. He had very few bad habits. He went out of his way to be helpful to people. And according to Maureen Orth, when Jeff met Andrew, he was, quote, in awe of the utter flamboyance and ease with which Andrew handled his sexual orientation. And Andrew and Jeff became very close. According to Maureen, Andrew would use Jeff to validate his crazy stories about his life because even after high school and after college, he's still making up these ridiculous stories about his life and his income and who he knew. At his 26th birthday party, he allegedly gave Jeff a box of Ferragamo shoes and told Jeff to pretend to give them to him, Andrew, as a birthday gift. He also allegedly asked Jeff to pose as a doctor at the party. Quote, for their part, Jeff's friends really couldn't stand Andrew. His friends... His friends, Chris Gamash and Judy Fleisner, said they told Jeff, you need to get this guy out of here. He's a jerk and an idiot. So people really did not like the relationship that Andrew and Jeff had. It was definitely like a one-sided give and take kind of thing. Okay. His sister Candace said, quote, people would ask Jeff why he put up with Andrew. His friends told me Jeff would say, it's kind of like having a black sheep in your family. You just put up with him and you just love him. Hello, it is Ryan. And I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. So I think part of Jeff felt a little bit bad for Andrew because he was going to such lengths to convince people of this lifestyle that he may or may not have had. And I think that's kind of what the dynamic of their relationship was. Okay, I just get that. I will say, though, that it seems as if Andrew may have had a bit of an obsession with Jeff. According to Jeff's sister, Lisa, she told the New York Times, quote, when Jeff got a haircut, Andrew had to have the exact same haircut. Uh, When Jeff went to San Francisco and got a certain style of baseball cap, Andrew had to go to San Francisco and get the very same cap. When Jeff grew a goatee, Andrew grew a goatee. There's speculation by some people that Jeff and Andrew were romantically involved, but Jeff's family vehemently denies this. And Andrew even supposedly referred to Jeff as his brother, so I don't think they dated or anything, but I don't know. Okay, well, there's nothing to substantiate it. Exactly. People say they didn't. Some people say they did. Andrew, again, referred to him as his brother, but... You know, who knows? It's it's irrelevant at the end of the day whether or not they actually dated. Either way, they knew each other and they were close. And that's that's what's relevant. Now, around this time, Andrew is making a lot of connections with his lifestyle. Some say he was an escort. Others say he was a sugar baby. Either way, Andrew was using his charm, charisma, and his affinity for storytelling to entice rich men in California. 
He was also using his looks. Like, no one could deny that Andrew was a very attractive man, and he definitely used that to his advantage. I posted a picture of the Instagram uh, on the Instagram as like a teaser for this episode, so you guys all saw what he looked like. I'm gonna show you a picture really quick. Well, he is a good-looking man. Yeah, he's an attractive young man. Mm -hmm. So I can see how the older elite in California would be very interested in him. You know, he's young. He's physically attractive. He's clearly very intelligent. You know, he was kind of checking off all those boxes. Now, he definitely, as I said, used these the, his looks to his advantage. According to an article written in the Washington Post in 1997, Andrew was modeling his look after Richard Gere's character in American Gigolo. Have okay. you ever seen that? Uh, no, actually, I haven't. Okay. Down to the sunglasses and tight pants. And I'll kind of show you a picture of, like, th this is how he would dress. Well, already then. Yeah. Uh, the shirt completely open, tie, I, I don't know, to kind of hold the, the neckline closed. Um, but then the rest of the shirt is open. Yeah. For those of you that didn't see it. So definitely he used his body to his advantage. Again, nothing necessarily wrong with that. According to this article, Andrew wasn't just offering his body. Quote, Kanan was a multilingual sophisticate who knew exactly which older men he wanted to meet. Andrew would frequent popular spots on Fifth Street looking for the next older man to befriend. Although I will say it seems as if Andrew was constantly moving through identities and how he presented himself. According to the LA Times, depending on who you talk to, Andrew was either the nicest guy in the world or he was quite aggressive. He was very effeminate or he didn't present as a gay man. He was always changing himself depending on who he was with. He was like a chameleon. Yeah, I was just going to say, it sounds like a chameleon to me. He also went by different names. Uh, Andrew De Silva, Lieutenant Commander and uh, Andy Cummings, Drew Cunningham, and Kurt Matthew Damaris were all names that he used. So he was introducing himself as different people to different people. I don't know how you keep all that straight. I have no idea. I know, I know people that had like this penchant for lying. Um, and it's like, I, I had a friend in the time that I knew her, her mom died three times. Literally, her mom died three times in the, in the time that I knew her. What was that? Well, that about, never mind. Her mom had a massive heart attack. It caught her in that lie because I had a key to their house and I went in cause I would walk the dog for them. And, um, her mom was there and I went, oh my God, mom, how are you? She's like, I'm fine. I'm like, how do you feel? She went, I'm, like, I'm fine. Why? I went, because your daughter said you had a massive heart attack. And she went, excuse me? Yeah. That's so twisted. Yeah. It's like um, an attention thing. It's weird. I don't understand, like... Um, no, it's like you're putting that out into the universe. It's like, well, no, yeah, no, there's don't that do too. That. Like, don't do that. But yeah, like, I don't understand the concept of, like, pathological liars. Like, I, I don't get it. Sorry. Fred Schnell, who managed a piano bar called Caliph that Andrew was a frequent guest at, said, quote, he would not approach customers. He paid attention to them, to what they were wearing and the cars they were driving. Andrew was also a frequent attendee of high-class social events. Operas, museums. He he was going to it all. And probably talking his way into it all. Okay. I, again, somewhat with, with the intelligence that he has it probably was very easy to convince somebody that he belonged at an event, mm -hmm. even if he didn't have a 
like ticket or an a invitation. Ticket. Right. I mean, to be fair, if I had the charm, charisma, and like intelligence he had to that level, I I would one hundred percent like try and get my way into like a gala or something. Just like not for like anything nefarious. Like I want to go to a gala. I want to do that. Like if I could talk my way into that, I would do it. You know what I mean? Yeah, put on, you know, beautiful outfit. Exactly. And like not, you know, for not for anything like nefarious. Like I just I want to go to a fancy party. Like, <laughs> like I don't need to meet anybody. I just want to go to a fancy party. Like just to say that you were there. Exactly. So there's nothing necessarily wrong with him, you know, talking his way into an opera or anything like that. Okay. I no, I I hear that, but I don't think he had uh, he did pure intentions. No, I'm sure he did not have. My intentions would be pure. His intentions were not, not so pure. So Ramirez Murray, a columnist for the Gay and Lesbian Times newspaper, said Andrew was, quote, a jewel in the crown of, La- of Loyola's closeted society. He could hold a conversation on nearly anything. Politics, antiques, wine, Elton John... If an older man was interested in orchids, Cunanan would go out and buy every book available on orchids and plants, and soon he would be talking about the subject as if he had studied it all his life. So he really, I can't imagine the amount of work it took to convince people of, like, how great he was. Like, you you know what I mean? I do know what you mean, but I don't think it was, at least for him, difficult if he, as a child memorize an entire set of cyclopedias that's fair encyclopedias so i'm thinking if he had to learn about orchids or whatever the subject was it probably came very easily to him i'm sure but i i and i guess what i mean is i can't imagine how exhausting it is to like constantly have to like change yourself to like impress other people because obviously like learning came incredibly naturally to him and like he was very charismatic but did she ever get tired of pretending to be something you're not? That has to be just so exhausting. I would think so, but what do I know? Now, the next person we're going to talk about is Norman Blanchford. And we're going to come back to Jeff. We're going to come back to all of these people. Norman Blanchford was a retired multimillionaire. He owned a sound company for cars in, in films, and it was incredibly successful. Like, his company even won an Oscar for technical achievement his production company or his uh, sound company was top-notch. Okay. Now, he sold this company when he retired and split his time between Phoenix, Arizona and and La Jolla, California. Norman obviously ran in ultra-elite circles and he was a member of a social club called Gamma Mu. This is uh, This is actually how he met Andrew. They were introduced by a mutual friend who was also in this club in 1994. Now, according to Maureen Orth, 58-year-old Norman was, quote, alone and very eligible when he met Andrew as his long-term partner had recently passed from AIDS. And Andrew was available as well since his partner, Lincoln Aston, had recently been murdered. I will say that at least one source said that he actually introduced himself to Norman as Andrew Da Silva, but I had trouble confirming that for sure. And actually, he met Norman through Lincoln, which is interesting that Lincoln was murdered and then you start dating the guy that your partner had introduced. It was weird. He had nothing to do with Lincoln's murder, though, as far as I know. 
According to Town & Country magazine, when Norman and Andrew got together, they weren't very forthcoming about their relationship. Norman would tell friends that Andrew was his decorator or just a friend that was helping him pick out art for his home. And Andrew would claim that Norman was, quote, an old man or a friend of the family. But in reality, they were living together. Apparently, Norman was not ignorant to the fact that Andrew was with him for the financial security he could provide and the very lavish lifestyle that Andrew longed to become accustomed to. According to every source, Norman was giving Andrew a monthly allowance of $2,500 a month. He bought him a 1996 Inf- Infinity i30T, took him on trips to go see Broadway shows, and they went on vacations to Paris and the south of France, like... Norman had a very attractive companion, and Andrew was living it up, like Daddy Warbuck style. To each his own. Exactly. You know, if the arrangement was working for them, it was working for them. Again, you do you, as long as everyone is consenting. In 1995, while still in an, like, for lack of a better word, arrangement with Norman, Andrew meets 33-year-old David Madsen. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about him. Now, David Madsen was one of four children born to a hardware store owner, Howard Madsen, and his wife, Carol, in Waterloo, Iowa, on October 16, 1963. He grew up in Wisconsin, according to the Washington Post, and he was an honor roll student and on the student council in high school. He had a proficiency for debate, as well as a passion for theater, according to MNOpedia.org. He won nine medals in statewide debate competitions, and he won the state quiz bowl in 81 and 82. He played varsity baseball as well as golf, and when he graduated from the University of Minnesota Duluth, he earned a master's degree in architecture as well as the President's Award for a traveling exhibit on AIDS. In 1994, he was a guest lecturer at Harvard on the topic of AIDS, and he moved to the warehouse district of Minneapolis where he was social, going out to very upscale restaurants like the Monte Carlo, and he was described as outgoing and friendly. He could usually be found walking his Dalmatian prince around the neighborhood, and according to Town & Country magazine, he was described as, quote, charismatic, outgoing, and a peacemaker by his friends, and he had a very successful career as an architect at the John Ryan Company in Minneapolis, where he was described as a rising star. So, David... Sounds wonderful. Well, yeah, he does. He was very passionate about the AIDS epidemic and, you know, raising awareness for that, which is, you know, in a time where people kind of wanted nothing to do with that and had, like, were fear-mongering the hell out of it. He was like, no, no, we need to talk about this. This is a problem. We need to talk about it, which is very admirable, especially, again, in a time where people were like, we're not talking about that. Right. And being very homophobic and gross. Also, it just started raining. So you guys can probably hear the rain. I'm sorry. I can't fix that. I think everybody will be okay with it. It's all right. Every once in a while, you can hear the train in the background too. Which I don't even hear it. I only hear it when we're, uh, when I go back to edit because I'm so used to the train. Because we live right next to the tracks. Now, at some point in 1995, David and Andrew met in San Francisco. And there was a lot of sparks according to time magazine andrew called david the love of his life 
And according to Refinery29, they began a long-distance relationship and supposedly started dabbling in an S&M relationship for about a year. In 1996, according to Boston University, Norman Blanchford ended their relationship. Now, this was either because he had found out about David, because... Andrew began this relationship while he was still with Norman, or because he attracted Andrew's spending habits and realized he was not really Andy De Silva, or, you know, depending on some sources, Andrew broke up with Norman because Norman wouldn't buy him a Mercedes. Either way, it put an end to Andrew's life of luxury. According to the LA, LA Times in 1997, Jeff and David were distancing distancing themselves from Andrew as well. According to a mutual friend, Michael Williams, Jeff had confided in him that he was worried about Andrew, who at this point had gotten a job at a pharmacy and was dealing drugs on the side. In addition, it seems that Andrew had a pretty aggressive prescription drug habit as well. Like apparently he was taking an obscene amount of painkillers. Well, that's not good. No. It's dangerous. It was very dangerous. Apparently, according to an anonymous source, Jeff had been warned about Andrew and his dark moods. The source said, quote, I thought Andrew was bad news and told Jeff that. I said, watch him. Apparently, Jeff had finally had enough when Andrew accompanied him to Texas for a job interview. Michael Williams said, quote, Jeff had really had it with Andrew, his flamboyancy, his loudness. According to other sources, the other reason was because Andrew had asked Jeff to start dealing drugs as well. And, you know, that's, you're, why, why, first of all, why are we asking, because at this point, I believe um, Jeff had retired from the Navy. Why are you asking a a former Navy man um, to steal drugs? Yeah, that's not good. Like, Andrew, what is going through your brain? Like, are you kidding me? According to Harper's Bazaar, Jeff had told told his friend Rick Allen in March of 97, quote, what Jeff told me was Andrew had talked to him about doing security work for his import-export business. And Rick had said that he didn't know what Jeff was talking about. And Jeff had said, quote, drugs, Rick, drugs. It's not something I tell anybody about. Rick asked, what did you tell him? And Jeff said, uh, quote, I said, quote, fuck you. And by the time Jeff moved to Minneapolis to work for a propane company, the friendship was hanging on by a thread. Who else lives in Minneapolis? Who? David. The love of Andrew's life. According to Harper's Bazaar, Jeff had told Michael Williams that he, quote, never wished to see Kananen again. So, I mean, the friendship wasn't even hanging on by a thread. Their friendship was essentially over at this point. And according to the New York Times, Andrew was allegedly very, very upset about this. His friend Mike Whitmore said, quote, he was physically upset about Jeff moving. David, for his part, allegedly started distancing himself from Andrew due to his lying in 1996. And when they officially broke up, Andrew was devastated. According to an article for ABC, Andrew's former roommate, Eric Greenman, said, quote, he loved David very, very much. But after the breakup, David didn't want anything to do with him. I mean, David was Andrew's life. He said many, many times that he would give up everything to move out to Minneapolis for David. This is not boding well. No. Now, according to Advocate.com, at some point that year, Andrew started feeling very sick and he had gone to get an HIV test, but he never went back to get the results. Apparently, he had just convinced himself that he was HIV positive, which... Part of me understands, like, it's like that fear that convinces you of something. Because obviously you hear 
you possibly have HIV. And I mean, now it's not, from my understanding at least, um, it's not the death sentence that it was in like the 90s because there's a lot of medications now that can prevent it from evolving into AIDS and all of that. But, you know, at the time, they didn't have the medications and stuff that they do now to kind of keep it from getting to that point. So when you heard you have HIV or you're positive, you know, it was I'm dying, I'm going to die kind of thing. So I think it was more like just the fact that it was a possibility convinced him that he was positive, even though he never got the result. As a result of this, he became very depressed and he was starting to let himself go physically, which, again, 100% understandable. You know, it's obviously devastating. You know, this was in the midst of the AIDS pandemic, so it's not like surprising that he had fallen into a depression. But he was so it's, you know, not only did he lose the lifestyle that he was accustomed to, he lost the love of his life. He lost like his best friend. He was losing his looks, which were very important to him because he was depressed. And, you know, he thought he had, you know, he thought he was positive for HIV. Right. So it's just, it's a lot of things all at once. Yeah, it sounds like it. According to Town and Country magazine, he had actually spoken to a San Diego AIDS counselor, like asking about the virus, asking about, I guess, the symptoms. And he allegedly told this counselor, quote, if I find out who did this to me, I'm going to get them. I do want to say that, you know, while he believed he had HIV or believed he was positive for it, um, it was determined that he did not have it. He was negative. Okay. He did not know he was negative, though. Right. So I, I, as I said, like, this is kind of really when it started to go downhill for him. And I think a lot of people thought that. According to Donna Brandt, who was the managing editor of America's Most Wanted at the time, she told ABC News, quote, he was dumped by his latest sugar daddy. Among his peers, he had gotten sloppy and lost his looks and the star was fading. So as I said, all of this one after the other, all at once. Now, according to crimeinvestigation.co.uk, at some point in 1997, Andrew went to go visit David Madsen in Minneapolis. And this is when he learns that Jeff who had moved to Minneapolis, as I said, had become acquainted with David. So they ended up meeting at some point. I don't know how, but David and Jeff met and they become friends. Okay. Now this was immediately a problem for Andrew because he had it in his head that they were together. Now, I don't know if they were really together at this point. I don't know if they were dating. I don't know if they were just friends. Either way, Andrew thought they were. Andrew thought they were dating, which I'm sure in his brain was a huge betrayal. This is my best friend. This is the love of my life. They don't want anything to do with me, but now they're together? Right. According to that uh, according to that same article, Andrew was reportedly very jealous of Jeff and of David for their success. And, you know, it's just such a big difference compared to his life. He had kind of fallen from grace. You know, he didn't have any money. He didn't have a partner. You know, he lost his looks, as I said, and he was, so he was probably really jealous, or at least people said he was really jealous, and he became obsessed with this idea that they were in a relationship, and, you know, he considered it going behind his back. Okay. Which, again. He's spiraling. Yes. And and that's the thing, is that he, and it's, it's literally in black and white, he is spiraling. He has convinced himself of all of this. 
Yeah, he's convinced himself he's HIV positive. He's convinced himself that Jeff and David are together. He's convinced that, you know, his life is essentially over because he's not rich. The the elites in California don't care about him. You know, I'm sure Norman was not shy about the fact that Andrew was lying to him. So I'm sure some people were hearing about it. You know, his world is literally collapsing around him and he's freaking out. Now, towards the end of April of 1997, he had told friends that, quote, he needed to settle some business with a friend and he was going to go to Minneapolis. According to the New York Times, when Andrew was going to leave California, he told Tim Barthel, owner of Fluxgate Bar in Hillcrest, where Andrew was a regular, that, that, quote, you know, he was broke, he got rid of his car, he was living in a dumpy apartment, all the pretenses were gone, he couldn't be the top dog anymore. Now, on Friday, April 25th of 1997, Andrew Cunanan took a one-way flight from San Diego to Minneapolis, where David Madsen picked him up at the airport. And that's where I'm going to leave it. Next week, we're going to pick right back up from this day, April 25th, 1997. And we're going to get into... The craziness? Yeah, and why Andrew was at the very top of the FBI's most wanted list. And we're going to talk about all of the victims... Because, again, while Gianni Versace is the most famous victim, there were four others that deserve just as much recognition and deserve to be spoken about just as much as Gianni Versace. Because, I mean, when they did the TV show, Ryan Murphy did the TV show American Crime Story, The Assassination of Gianni Versace. It's literally called The Assassination of Gianni Versace. I mean, yeah, they featured the other victims, but it was all about Gianni Versace. And Andrew Cunanan. And there were four other victims. I do want to say that some people call Andrew Cunanan a serial killer. I would not classify him as one. I would classify him as a spree killer. Because the murders took place all within three months. Three months? Yeah. So. And they couldn't find him for three months. Well, actually, we are going to talk about that. It was definitely not for a lack of trying. But Andrew was also trying very hard to stay hidden and actually Norman Blanchford may or may not have helped the FBI figure out where he was. So we'll see you guys next week for part two of the Andrew Cunanan story. Bye guys. Bye.